It's really my privilege to be back among you. And, uh, you know, it's uh, not all of you know this, but I'm one of your supported missionaries. And uh, it just means a ton to come back to a church where uh, I know I'm cared for and supported and loved. And if any of you want to pray for me, don't be shy. Uh, I'll be in Ethiopia. My next trip comes up. But what I do, just to fill you in a little bit, with Barnabas International, here's the here's the insider secret. I taught at Multnomah for 20 years at both the Bible College and then at the seminary. And um, students from Multnomah have now gone worldwide as missionaries, as global workers. And I get to go out and visit my former students worldwide. And it's a it's a pretty nasty job, but someone has to do it. Uh, and, and really the role there is to, it's, we're called Barnabas International, is to offer encouragement to keep the missionaries on the field uh, so that they don't get, there's some bruising and some discouragement out there, just like anywhere, um, but they don't get to say much about that in their prayer letters. It's always good news, good news, good news. But I get out there and I say, now tell me the real news. And they're not telling untruths, they're just not telling everything. And I get to go out and just say, how are you doing? Uh, tell me both your, your biggest encouragement and your biggest challenge. And it's a sweet time to be able to take that biggest challenge and talk about it for a couple of hours and uh, at length. So anyway, that's the role I get to have. It's good to be here. And we get to look at Exodus chapter 17 uh, this morning. I'm looking forward to that. Let me just pray uh, for my role here. Father, I pray that it would be a time that you would use for good. I pray that you would encourage us through your word, that I could be a voice that um, reflects you, reflects you, what you have in your heart, what you would have us have on our hearts. Could we taste and see more of your goodness? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what is testing and triumph? It's interesting um, to ask this question, when we face challenges, and I don't ask if we face challenges, when we face challenges, like we all do, what's our response? And how does God get involved, or does he? And, and how does, when we have a challenge, how does it look from our point of view? Sort of we look around and say, does anyone really know or care? Maybe we can slip into that mode. Well, what is God's point of view about our challenges? Or does he care? Does he know? So that's a big question. And I think that's what we're having to discover about the people of Israel as they're marching out uh, from um, Egypt, where they'd been enslaved for 400 plus years, and now they're being set free. But what is it like to live this new freedom, to be in this Exodus experience? So we want to look at that. They're coming to the camp of Rephidim, um, which is just as they're moving forward, it's just before they get to Mount Sinai. And, of course, we think of Mount Sinai as the big Old Testament summit, the big key moment. But uh, they still had to get there, and it was this progression of making that that movement from crossing uh, uh, the Red Sea, escaping Pharaoh's army, and we find here in this chapter they have challenges that are both internal challenges as the nation, as the group of travelers, the 600,000 of them. Uh, more than that, actually, that's just those who could go out to war, probably a million-plus people. They've got these serious challenges within, and then they also have challenges from the outside, some enemies they're going to fight. So that will be in Chapter 17. We'll just march into it here. First of all, 
Uh, let me read from 1 through verse um, 7. All the people, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin, uh, or Sin, uh, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. Will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah, which is to mean testing, and Meribah, which is quarreling. Uh, once we translate it, because of the quarreling of the people of Exodus, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, that's the first segment. That's the internal tension that they're experiencing. Then they're going to have the Amalekites coming after them. We'll hold off on the reading of that um, until we get to that passage. We'll take a look at the internal, the first crisis. So, we have an obvious problem. They come to a wadi, to a campsite. They're in this desert, and they have maybe their jars of water. They didn't have canteens in those days or cans of water. They had to just carry what they could. Water's heavy, and they're walking by foot, so they're going, okay, we need to go from our last water source to our next water source. So uh, God settles down his glory in a place, and this is where they're going to camp. And where's the water? you know where the water is? Uh, it looks like a creek bed here, but it doesn't look like it's had water in it for a long time. And it dawns on them, there is no water. Now, here's the crisis. Isn't God leading them? Isn't he the one that took them out of Egypt? Isn't he the one protecting them from the Egyptians? Isn't he the one that just gave them manna? Did, did you talk about that recently? Yeah, manna, it's a bit of a miracle, isn't it? A manna every day for the next number of years. In fact, it's really interesting. This is a dawning. I write a blog. And in the blog, it just occurred to me that actually the manna was just meant to be transitional temporary food until the people in a later chapter blow it, send out their spies. And guess what? The transitional food has to last then for the next 40 years because of their own. Well, that's another sermon. But it, 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 right now they're happy because they've got food, but what do they lack? Water. The two go together. So it's an obvious problem. So here's our question. We have to ask this. How long can you go without water? A day or two? Maybe three? three? Three days, and then you start to die. Yeah. So it was kind of an urgent issue. And here's our question. Did God lead them into the wilderness to die? That's their question. Probably not. So it was kind of a, can I be blunt here, kind of a dumb plan, wasn't it? 
God, what were you thinking? And that's exactly what they're saying to God. God, what are you thinking? You're going to bring us out here to die? What, what kind of God are you, for crying out loud? This is ridiculous. And Moses, of course, isn't thrilled with this because he said, why are you testing God? And, in fact, we see back in the manna episode that um, <laughs> Moses was pretty blunt. He said, why are you grumbling against the Lord? For when you grumble against me as your immediate leader, you're actually grumbling against God. And they thought they had a right to grumble. If you were out there with no water supply and someone else is in charge of the retreat or the trip or the conference, would you maybe tend to grumble? Wonder about their leadership? So anyway, it's just an obvious problem. And here's the second and underlying issue that I think is in play here. And we can skip this one, but I don't think we should. How long has Israel been without having a working relationship with God? What was it, 400 years they were in Israel? Do you think they maybe forgot what it is to have a God? And they don't really have much knowledge of what it means for God to be God? And do you think maybe God has to awaken in them what it is for God to be God? If that's the underlying problem, it could be that God wants to set up a crisis so that they have to say, God, if you're God, then we need you. And that wasn't their first response, was it? Instead, it was to quarrel and to grumble. Now, I'm, I'm thinking as I was preparing this sermon, kind of how to come at it, because I did come at it sort of, this is dumb. God, why did you lead them out into a dry and weary and desolate place and not think about the water ahead of time? Well, he had thought about the water ahead of time. But here's my instinct. I tend to operate like a person who doesn't believe in having a God. Do you think our culture in Clark County, or if we go across and count ourselves as kind of a suburb neighborhood to Portland and Pacific Northwest and the United States at large, are we really used to having a God that we look to for every moment of the day and say, you're God, I'm not, I trust you? Or are we like the people of Israel who are saying, this idea of having a God is kind of novel. I mean, what's he going to do for us to have a God? How much do we have to talk to him? Chapter 8 keeps the devil away? I mean, what are we supposed to do here with whatever he has to say? I mean, you know, what's, what's the formula that we have to have to have a God? What's a God? They have forgotten over 400 years what it is to have a God. So who's going to teach them how it is to live with a God? God? And that's the challenge I think he sets up for them. He says, I'm going to put you in a very dry spot. And then you're going to have to say, God, help us! And what do they do? God, are you among us? Did you catch that last line? Is the Lord among us or not? They put it in a skeptical sort of an arrangement. Is he really here? I mean, you better give us water or we're going to doubt you into non-existence. And that seems to be the issue here. But, of course, um, God's response is they haven't collected the dots. What it is is they had been under the Egyptian pharaoh and the leadership of the Egyptians. Did the Egyptians love the people? Did they care for them? Were they really warm and winsome? folks in watching over them during that 400-year period. 
or were they slave drivers, taskmasters? And we know the answer to that one. They were not a happy group of leaders to have over you. And especially during the plagues and all the rest, uh, it was a real competition. Now, what is it like to be under a leader who loves you, who cares you, who has every hair on your head counted? That meant a lot to me when I was came to faith as a young believer, as a 16-year-old. I re- was reading in Matthew uh, about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I came to faith. And I said, but how does it work? And ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened. I kept reading, got up to Matthew 10. And I said, is this my imagination, or do you really care for me? This motley little teenager wandering around the hills of Montana at the time. And he said, look, it aren't two sparrows sold for a penny not. One of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Indeed, every hair on your head is counted. See, for me, that was what it was to realize I have a God who cares for me. And that's the transition that has to take place here for these people in Israel to start to come to grips with the fact that God does care for them. And so what he does is he has them go out. And um, I I just should read. It was interesting as I was um, doing my sermon prep, I do these Bible read-throughs. And I happen to be in my current Bible reading in... um, in Deuteronomy at the time that I was preparing, first started preparing for the talk this morning. And there it is. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is um, reviewing uh, after they've reached the promised land. They're just on the outskirts, ready to go across the river into the promised land. So this is 40 years after the fact. And he's reviewing the whole thing. And he said, your God, this is chapter 8, verse uh, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Uh, Your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Did, Did Jesus ever use that line when he was being tested? By saying, turn these rocks, you're starving, aren't you? Turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus says, oh, I live by my Father's words, not by what you're telling me to do, Satan. And um, But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And he t- comments about during 40 years, your clothing didn't wear out. And now, in fact, there's a land that lies ahead of you, a land of wheat, barley, vines, and fig trees, and pomegranates. Good stuff. But he was testing you for the 40 years. It could have been four weeks, but you didn't respond well. So you got the additional 40-year lesson. And and it goes on and mentions, um, when you come into the new land, don't get proud. Don't let your hearts be lifted up. I'm down to verse 14. Lest you forget God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house, house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents, scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. And he brought water to you out of the flinty rock. See, that was a big part of God's lesson. Do I care for you? Yes, I do. But I'm going to have to create the crisis so that the question is going to be asked, how do you respond and how do I respond to your need? So we find then that God has brought them out. And it's interesting as he wants to connect the dots he has Moses with the elders. Now, this is an interesting point. 
a leader always has a group of people with him whom he's leading. In this case, it's the group of elders. And he says, okay, guys, can't have the whole million of people gather around us. We need water. You are the ones who are meant to be the in-between people, me as leader, Moses would say, and you as the elders, the 70 who are the responsible larger group. Let's go and have a chat with God. Okay, God, you said to strike this rock with the same rod that I used to do what? Divide the Red Sea. The same rod that he threw down and uh, frightened Pharaoh with turning it into a snake and all the rest. The rod of God. And he says, okay, bam, water. All the water they needed. So much water, it was enough for a million people. And at that point, probably they learned a little more about what it is to have God as God. And that was a lesson God wanted them to learn. So there's the challenge, the inside challenge. What is it to have God as God versus God as a Sunday rubbing stone or whatever people might tend to do with God these days? It's a challenge that I think we live with today, especially when we have hard times. God, are you there? Do you really care? Does it matter to you? Which takes us then to the second crisis, and this is an external crisis. And um, let me just read this passage then in whole. Verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Same location, they're still there. Uh, so Moses said to Joshua, his understudy, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with a staff. There's that staff again. With a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek when Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And when he sat on it, Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua when I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the, under heaven. And uh, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's interesting in the Hebrew, uh, banner and throne are sound-alike words. They're parallel. So the, if you had been reading Hebrew, you would have, gone, you would have heard the, the parallelism of the language. And uh, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that is the, um, that's the story of the external challenge. So they've just had the internal challenge. What about water? Does God care for us? Grumbling against the leadership, grumbling against God, finally getting that resolved. Having manna, they have food, water, they have the water. Now they have the external enemies that want to kill them. Now, who are the Amalekites? Does anyone know the story of the Amalekites? Well, read through your Bibles, and if um, and I encourage that. Don't don't be shy to. The first time I 
took Bible reading seriously. I had an old Scottish minister who read through the Bible for 50 years, two to three times a year. I said to him, have you read through the Bible between 100 and 150 times? Oh, yeah, sure. How do you have time for that? Well, you do what you think is important. Okay. So I adopted that in 1966. And I got to 2016. That was my 50th year of following Sam's example. So what I want to know is who's going to be around in 2000. There's some young people here. 2066 who can say this crazy guy talked about reading through the Bible two or three times a year for 50 years. And so I adopted that. I'd love to have someone talking about that in 2066. So here's the baton if anyone wants to take it. Well, anyway, you know, that the one thing that struck me is how much the Amalekites are actually part of the Old Testament. They're there repeated again and again. So, for instance, this morning, I just, um, day before yesterday, I was reading, by this time, I'm up to Samuel in my reading, for Samuel, and there, uh, David is off with the Philistines, and he's having to work this arrangement where Saul and the Philistines are going to fight, and David has to be with the Philistine general, and it's an awkward situation. He's rescued from that, sent back to his town of Ziklag. Now, Ziklag, in the meantime, has been raided by the Amalekites, and basically, they were taking all of the women and children that were left in this fortified camp and taking them off for bad reasons. And David manages to rescue his family, his wives, his children from the Amalekites. Saul was supposed to have fought against the Amalekites, and he doesn't do that. That's one of the reasons when God says to Saul through Samuel, Samuel says to him, you have not obeyed God. You are picking and choosing what you want to do with God's leadership. You can't do that. You were told to confront the Amalekites, and you didn't do that. So the Amalekites are like this hovering plague that are just outside the main focus of the Old Testament scriptures, but they're always there, almost like the enemy's great, I don't know, Malaria build, carrying mosquitoes, or or these these, you know, they're not a big nation, so they can't come in and defeat them in an actual direct battle. But they're forever trying to see if they can come and kill as many Israelites as they can. That's the Amalekites. They are the Amalek. We find from uh, where is that at? I had to make a note on that. Genesis um, uh, chapter thirty-six. Amalek is the grandson of Esau, Jacob and Esau. And the two brothers don't get along with each other. So guess what has happened? One of the grandchildren just becomes the ultimate enemy of Israel. Jacob's name is also called Israel. So it's basically uh, Jacob versus uh, Esau, Jacob and Amalek. So it's this long-term hostility that's been carrying on. And that becomes the external challenge that's being faced here by the people of Israel. And when the battle comes and takes place, God says, okay, here's what I want to do. I want you to take the same rod that just you smacked the rock with. I want you to go and take that to the hilltop now and put that up in the air, probably both hands. This is what I'm picturing. And as long as you are in effect, and that's where the title of uh, banner 
this is going to hold this like a, a sign or a banner. Uh, hold this up, and the sound alike word, it's like the throne of God. Think of the fact that I'm on my throne, and these people are out challenging my role as God and being your, your God, protecting you. And if they're going to come and challenge, when you put your hand out, and how does it say it's like a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord then says, okay, this is my battle. What you're doing by sticking your hands up in the air like this and saying, we don't know how to defeat these people. They keep, they keep beating us. But as long as we are putting our hands on the throne, holding on to that which represents who you are and what you're like, we're winning. And notice it's a matter of the attention. It's where the focus is. So you've got this team of men, and once again, it's partnership, isn't it? The leader, Moses, and his two men who are going, wow, we're learning a lesson here. We keep winning as long as we help Moses keep his arms up in the air. To have your arms up in the air for a whole day would be wearisome. Get that? You've got to have some help. So do you notice how much we've got to help people who are trying to put their hands on God? I don't know if that's a real spiritualized application, but I think it's a pretty practical one. As long as that's going on, they're winning. And eventually the Amalekites are defeated in this particular battle. So then, so write this as a memorial book, recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You mess with my people, I mess with you. So here's the big question that we come to in the conclusion. What does it mean for us to have God as God? Do we ever grumble and say, is the Lord really among us? Does God really care for us, for my family, for me, for us? Where's God? Why do we have to go through these hard times? If God really cared for us, man, we would be in Bermuda with a boat on a long vacation. I mean, if God really cared for us, that's what I would want him to do for me. Do you catch the backwardness of that? God was testing the people to know what was in their hearts. And when it's all about us, does God want to support us when it's all about us? And going to Haiti is not all about us. That's going to some rough and tumble, reaching out and saying, let me give my life away for someone else. I'm going to be in Ethiopia here in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be rough and tumble. I'm already taking my pills and my shots and getting my warnings about the State Department warnings about Ethiopia these days. I mean, you go with your eyes open. Is it about us, or is it about having God as a God who loves us? who cares for us, and says, I'm going to give you some challenges. And so here's the big question. When your challenges come, do you ask, why is it that God doesn't do what we want him to do? For crying out loud, God, get your act together. Is that a response? That was Israel's response. Did you catch that? I'm sort of enlarging it a little bit, but that was their response, wasn't it? Is he really among us? Oh, come on, God. If we're going to vote you in for another term, you better get your act together. Or is the question, so how will God surprise us in this adventure? 
See the difference between faith and lack of faith? How will God surprise us and tell us more about himself in this adventure? Thank you, God. In everything, give thanks, because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. By the way, in the New Testament, Paul gets it. He says, you know who the rock was that was really the supplying the water one? It was Jesus. He was in the Old Testament with his people. He was the caregiver. He, was, he loved the people. And he could hardly wait for the day to come when he would come to earth and be visible and present as a human. And so that's the triumph. Follows the testing. And I just pray that all of us, when we have our tests, will have the experience of uh, just trusting God. There it is, the great opportunity. <sighs> There's more to say here, but I'm going to let it go at that. What does it mean for God to be God? Let me pray. Father, I do pray that as you um, would uh, take these words and give us a sense of our own application, uh, some of us are right in the thick of a challenge or two. Life isn't going so well. I just pray, Father, that we could learn more quickly what it is to have you as God and to have Jesus as your son who loves us and gave his life for us, that we could respond to the gift that we have in Jesus and um, taste and see, as I prayed earlier, what it is to have you, that you are good. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to have um, uh, the uh, communion service.